Let me invite you to turn your Bible, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think it is safe to say where God is obviously at work, the devil will be secretly at work. That when God begins to do something, the the devil is going to work against that. We know that uh, from scriptures, like the parable of the the, the uh, midnight sower that comes in and sows uh, false seed among. Uh, but it's clear, obviously, in passages like this, uh, in the books of First and Second Corinthians, uh, that that God was at work among the congregation at Corinth, but also they became the target of Satan's schemes, to use the word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He talks about not being ignorant of Satan's schemes to cause disruption and disunion, uh, disunity in the congregation. He is described in 2 Corinthians 11 as disguising himself as an angel of light and his ministers being the same, that he... Uh, he, like with Adam and Eve, operates by deception. So whenever you have God actively at work, the devil is secretly at work. And one of his chief tools is to cause conflict and disunion and, uh, and uh, disunity among God's people. And so Paul has to write right at the beginning of this book to address that. Look, if you would, begin in verse Uh, 10 of chapter 1, because the seeds of disunity have been sown and Paul wants to restore them to unity. Begin in verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. No, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. In verse 10, we find the basic plea that Paul is after and trying to call them. You can see it to unity. I just want us to notice the characteristics of this plea first, though. In verse 10, it's relational. I exhort you, brethren, or uh, those who are part of my spiritual family. So Paul, even though he is, it's going to become clear as we work through it, that Paul is really sort of on the opposite side of a number of these folks, that, that he still looks at them as his spiritual family. He sees them as brothers and sisters in Christ, and so he's making an appeal on that basis, that they would recognize that they should be unified as the followers of Christ rather than divided. But even though it's relational, it's also authoritative. Notice he says, by the name 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not making an appeal to them on his own authority, but he's making it on the authority of Christ. Uh, we we uh, probably don't use the same word, but like if we said stop in the name of the law, right? You'd be saying based on the authority of the law, I'm asking you to stop, right? When, Jesus, when Paul says here, I exhort you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying on the basis of the authority of Jesus Christ, on the basis of who he is, I'm exhorting you to do this. He's rooting it actually in the nature and character of Christ. The name of Christ uh, is his status as Lord, and therefore he has the right to claim this. But it's also a corrective plea. Look at in verse 10, down at the words, be made complete. That uh, the word that, that Paul uses there uh, is, it's an interesting word. It's, it can be used along a spectrum of, of ways, but generally the idea is to have something be brought back into right alignment. For instance, it's used of setting bones or mending nets or reconciling a group that's in conflict. And so what Paul's saying here right now, there's divisions. I hear about quarrels. You guys have these slogans that you have. I want you to be brought back into unity. I want to see you mended together in a way that you're unified instead of being uh, full of disunity. And so he's not afraid uh, to to try to correct them in this, which uh, it's always the the case, but, you know, somebody could say, well, Paul, you just want your way, right? He's calling them to unity. He's telling them to stop the fighting. And it could be like, well, yeah, you're just saying we got to do it your way, Paul. But remember, he started with, hey, we're a family of followers of Christ. We are under the lordship of Christ, and we should be lined up with his will. We should be lined up with him. And so he, he, he's approaching them in that way. So what does he want to see happen? Uh, it gets a little obscured in our English translations, but Paul uses the word same three times in this verse. It's first one is it actually in the words in the New American Standard that you all agree. And, and some of you may have a footnote there that says speak the same thing. So it's, that you have the same speech, and then at the end of the verse, the same mind and the same judgment. So clearly, it's a it's a it's an argument for a sameness to them. I think when he's saying all say the same thing, he's focusing really on them having the same unifying message, because what what will become uh, very clear in the unit that follows this is that there are people who are trying to adjust the way in which the message is communicated. For instance, even at the end of this universe 17, he talks about the cleverness of speech that would render the cross void. So there, there are uh, what we might call philosophies of ministry, approaches to the proclamation of the gospel that are beginning to diverge from each other, and that's what's producing the conflict and disunity. What Paul wants them to do 
is to have the same message, to say the same thing, to be in agreement about what the central message of Christ is. Then he uses, at the end of the verse, the same mind, or you could, uh, it could be mindset or way of thinking, disposition, that they, they actually have the same approach to the Christian life, the same mindset should govern them. Right, obviously, there's lots of uh, diversity to Christians in terms of who they are and and uh, how they live out their lives. But at the core of it, someone who's under the name of Christ should be marked by the same basic mindset. There isn't a diversity at that level. Right? It's not. It's not. Um, you choose your mindset, then tack Jesus onto it. Right? When you come to Christ, he actually becomes the center. If there's any flavor to it, it's actually only on the periphery. It's not the center of it because the center is Christ and they need to be of the same mindset. But then notice he uses the word a third uh, description at the end of verse 10, the same judgment. The idea here, some of you may have translations of the same opinion, uh, probably opinions are too weak of an English word, I think, because for us, like opinions are a dime a dozen. I mean, you just like, you can have an opinion about everything. Uh, whereas this would be talking more about some level of assessment and judgment or view of things. And again, I think what Paul would be saying here is that we measure things by the same standard, right? When you and I look at things, the standard by which we would measure them should be the same. We don't have differing measures and standards. We have one, that which has been revealed to us by God in his word, right? So lots of times, I mean, and probably for all kinds of things, it's fine. So, well, that's your opinion. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, right? That's sort of like the national slogan. But, but the reality is when it comes down to an assessment of what is true, what is right, the authority on that is God and his word. And, and my opinion isn't the standard. And so believers can't surrender to, to this kind of flattening out of all opinions as being all of equal worth and all of equal authority in people's lives. And if you think about it, our culture, the world today, actually sends us down a pathway saying that will produce unity, which actually produces disunity. Right? If everybody's opinion has an equal right to stand in the marketplace of truth, then there's never going to be any unity, right? But, but when there is a source of truth, a revealed message from God that can stand above everything else and give us a perspective from which we can look at it, then we can be brought closer to each other by moving toward the truth of God, right? It's actually the word of God 
that has been revealed to us that establishes the way in which we measure things. I mean, he, he is the ultimate determiner of what is, if I can use classic kinds of statements, what is good, beautiful, and true, right? And, and we've, we've liked to relativize it all. And we started with beauty, right? It was just beauty just in the eye of the beholder. There's really no objective thing like beauty. It's just, it's just your opinion. And then we move to good, right? Well, you know, it's all sort of relative. And now we've moved to truth. Well, that's your truth. That's my truth, right? What we've done is over decades have had seep in a kind of man-centered evaluation of things that are supposed to be transcendent and established by God have become relativized and made conditioned by people. And we've lost any ground on which we can call people together for unity. Shouldn't be that way in the church of Jesus Christ. There are standards revealed to us in the word. There is a mindset that is supposed to control us. There is a message that is to unify us. And Paul says, listen, my family, under the Lord of Christ, be knit together with the same message, same mindset, and the same standard by which you will measure things. That's the plea. So, so what's the problem there at Corinth? Well, you can see it sort of tipped off in verse 10, where he says that there be no divisions among you, right? So that's sort of the negative. He wants the three sames. He wants not the, the divisions. But verse 11 and 12 come clearly out with what the problem is. Uh, he, he, the reality, verse 11, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So there are divisions among them. There are quarrels that have broken out, and Paul is informed by this by those of Chloe's people. So let me start with the divisions in verse 10. It's, uh, you know, sometimes people just go, that's the word schisms, and so it's schismatic behavior, and, and it's probably not in this case emphasizing uh, the group that's pr- produced as much as it is the action that's producing it, right? It's tearing things or rending them. So, so what ought to be unified, you ought to be of the same, same, same. Instead, there's tearing that's happening in the congregation, right? There are divisions that are surfacing and, and those divided opinions are leading to these kinds of arguments. And, uh, I think it, it is, it's just really important for us to remember that the problem here is not the truth. It's actually the errors, right? The, the congregation was united around Christ and the errors that came in are causing the terrors, right? It's always moral and doctrinal error that divides, not the truth. And, and, and everybody wants us to think the opposite of that again. Well, you know, emphasize love, not doctrine, right? Doctrine divides, love unifies, and it, it tries to make the truth the problem, but it's actually falsehood that divides people. They cause the division, 
by turning away from the truth of God and, and producing these kinds of issues in them. It should be, really should be a reminder to us, right? The reality of this problem at Corinth should be a reminder to us that it doesn't take long for disunity to develop. I mean, Paul was there uh, early 50 to 52 AD. He's writing back only within a couple of years, three years from that. So he had this fruitful 18-month ministry there where God did incredible things. He leaves in almost an equal amount of time. He has a church that's all torn up with division. Right? It doesn't take long for the seeds sown by Satan to produce it. And that passivity about the problem never solves it. Right? We like to think if, if, if uh, there's people sowing dissension or causing division, uh, the right response is just sort of like, well, just, you know, just let the Lord take care of it. That's not what Paul did. Paul said, no, there's, there's a problem here. It needs to be addressed because it won't, if the devil is sowing disunity in the congregation secretly, the problem won't actually just go away. It'll just keep spreading. And so Paul steps in to be active about it. We really don't know who this by Chloe's people or some of you have household of Chloe or Chloe's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's debated, uh, probably, I mean, we know they have some connection to Chloe. We don't know if they're family, probably not, or else that might've been said. Uh, it seems like one of the most plausible ways to look at it is Paul is writing from another place. Uh, these were folks who were probably in the area with Paul who had been in Corinth doing some kind of business and had returned to Paul with this message, right? Because there are people that had some information about it and reported it to Paul, right? And, and that message has come to Paul, and Paul is, is, when he uses the word, I have been informed, he's, he's actually using a fairly strong way to say it. It's not just like, you know, I heard something, but I've received the report about you that this is going on and it's come back to him. As I was thinking about this, I want to just make sure we understand a difference here between gossip and what they're doing, right? Because Chloe's people are not gossiping about the church of Corinth uh, for a couple of reasons, one of which is this is a public problem in the church. So it's not, not actually someone's coming along like gossip usually does, it operates on usually on private personal information. You share some tidbit about somebody to, to spread about them, either for your own advantage, you're in the know, or by harming that person so that you look better. Right? And that's that's not what Chloe's people were doing. They actually were talking about a real open problem at Corinth for which Paul had both responsibility and authority. Now, this wasn't just like, hey, they're, they're sitting around the, you know, sitting, sitting around the table and, and go, man, did you hear about those guys over at Corinth? They're just a mess. 
And they're all just talking about what a mess it is without anybody responsible to do something about it. Paul actually had responsibility, so they were bringing it to somebody who could do something about it. That's why uh, my, uh, my take on it always has been, uh, if you're talking about a problem, are you talking about someone who is a part of the problem or a part of the solution to the problem? In this case, Paul is a part of the solution to the problem. If you're not talking to a person who's involved in the problem to try and correct it, or talking to somebody who can start to correct it, then it's probably a decent chance you are gossiping. But that's not what Chloe's people were doing. They were saying, Paul, here's what's going on at Corinth. And Paul knew he needed to do something about it, right? So he's taking the information to people who had a responsibility for it. This, this is a report of public problems at Corinth to someone with authority and a responsibility to deal with them, right? So here's, here's what I'd say. So one of the practical things you can do when people start to tell you information that you're not sure you should be privy to is ask why they're telling you that. Why are you, why are you sharing that with me? Do you think that I have some responsibility in this problem that I need to, to do? Right? Is there something that I'm supposed to take action on here? Because if they're just telling you just to randomly inform you about somebody's problem and you don't have any authority or responsibility, then they might not be motivated properly by it. And certainly, if we would do simply what Jesus says about doing to others what we would want done to us, you should listen like that. Would I want somebody telling somebody else about this in my life for no apparent reason? Right? That's, that's not what's going on here. This is someone concerned about the health of the church of Corinth who's raising it to somebody who can do something about it. All right? And look at the, the root of the problem there is that last part in verse 11. It says that there are quarrels among you. This is a pretty strong word. It, shows up, for instance, in Galatians 5 among the works of the flesh, right? It's, it's a, an issue of strife or conflict, contention, disputes, uh, all the way down toward the end of the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. He talks about an upcoming visit and he's concerned when he comes and listen to what he's concerned, what he might find there. Perhaps there will be, and here's this word, strife. That's the same one here. Right? Perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Right? So that's, that's the neighborhood within which quarrels fits. Right? It sits alongside of arrogance, slanders, angry tempers, jealousy. Right? So, so what's broken out at Corinth and showing itself in the form of divisions is rooted in a kind of a contentious, quarrelsome, strife-oriented spirit. They're fighting with one another about things. And, and they're not really legitimate doctrinal disputes, but more political power divisions uh, that have come by operating from what I think we could say from chapter 3 are fleshly methods 
of, of, of gaining and using power within the assembly. So, so um, and again, I'm trying to balance us because uh, we can live in a day that acts as if any kind of conflict is necessarily a sinful issue. And that's not always the case because, for instance, we're told to earnestly contend for the faith, right? So the issue here isn't that someone's taking a stand on the truth. It's that they are actually taking stands and fighting with one another over things that are not anchored in ultimately the, the truth. They, they are actually posturing themselves for political advantage and influence. And that becomes clear when you look at verse 12, uh, 12, because here's what's going on. And notice how it starts at verse 12. Now I mean this. So he's going to go, here's what I mean by the quarrels among you. Each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I am of, I have Apollos, I have Cephas, and I have Christ. And what he's probably meaning here is this, this is what's happening at the church. You're clustering up into groups and adopting a slogan that identifies you. Paul, Apollos, Cephas is a Aramaic for Peter, and then Christ. Right? And, and, and they're, they're doing this in such a way that are pitting themselves against each other to some degree. Uh, but it's really for their own viewpoints, right? Because we know that because two of these we're absolutely sure would not be in favor of it. Paul and Christ, right? So Jesus isn't going, hey, where's my group? And Paul's not going, hey, where's my group? So we know those two are against this. That is, whoever's in the I'm of Christ group is not actually fairly representing Christ. And those who are of the I'm of Paul group are not fairly representing Paul. And I think it's safe to say, based on what we find from Apollos or about Apollos that Paul talks about later in the book, that Apollos wouldn't be a fan of it. And I'm pretty sure Peter wouldn't be either. So, so what you have here is sloganeering for their own viewpoints in order to score points, right? They really want to advance their own agenda, not the agenda represented by these names. And uh, it's hard. We don't really know. We can't really say dogmatically why they have said this. I mean, one, I think, uh, at least carries some weight to it is that it might be on the basis of people that they were converted under. Because what Paul starts to go to is about baptizing people, right? And we know, we know from, for instance, chapter three and verse five, that Paul says, who are Paul and Apollos, but servants through whom you believed. So people in the congregation at Corinth had come to face through Paul. We know that chapter four and Apollos chapter three. Chapter nine uh, at least seems to suggest that the apostle Peter had traveled through Corinth because Paul references Peter traveling along with his wife, which is a slight problem for, for popes, right? But he's traveling along with his wife, right? So he may have passed through there as well. 
So it's possible that, that someone came to Christ through the ministry of the apostle Paul. Someone else came through the, the ministry of Apollos. Someone else came through the ministry of Peter. The problem with that one is it doesn't necessarily answer the of Christ thing, unless it was simply someone came to the Lord apart from those three. But, but we don't know for sure. We probably, since you have the of Christ, you probably have just clusters of people trying to uh, elevate themselves above the rest by an appeal to some well-known person, obviously Jesus being the most, and probably the ones that are having sort of the most spiritual kind of statement about it. What we don't know is what were the substance of the divisions until we start to see a little bit of the conflict between Paul, those who seem to be of Paul and Apollos, because those are the ones that Paul drills down on. Uh, it's probably about how you think about the gospel and the ministry. But the real, the real issue is this kind of man-centeredness that's happening. Uh, here's, I, I'd like us just to think about this for, I mean, just terms of like where we live about life, right? And here's, I think, at least some of what we could think on this is that sometimes the most dangerous threats to unity seem to be the most pious. Right? No one in this group is saying, I'm of Satan. Right? They're, they're, they're wrapping themselves in the banner of some well-known, very influential Christian servant or of the Lord himself. Yet they're working for the disunity of the church in that regard. I mean, the devil seldom shows up wearing horns and carrying a pitchfork. In fact, I'm not sure he ever does. But somehow that's the way we've painted it out. I mean, you're going to know the work of the devil when again and again, the reality of it is, is that he actually transforms himself into an angel of light and says his own ministers are the same way. I mean, a half-truth deceives more people than a whole lie. If you can get close to sounding right, you're going to be more effective of deceiving people than if you state the opposite, right? And, and that's the thing that we have to recognize. Sometimes seemingly good motives can propel bad decisions and bad theology. I mean, I remember... I mean, the first time this like was crystal clear in my mind was when I was a sophomore in college and I used to do campus ministry down at Clemson University. And uh, in mid-year of my sophomore year, there was a big shakeup in the organization that we were serving with because the leader of the organization signed us up into an ecumenical like Christmas carol sing. So, I mean, it was, it was like with every Christian group on campus liberal mainline denominations, all of that stuff. And I was talking to the leader, the guy who was the director of the ministry. His name was Rich. And he looked at me and said, Dave, these guys don't understand what you have to do to reach the college campus. And I remember standing there thinking to myself, this guy doesn't hate Jesus. 
He doesn't want to abandon the faith. He wants to reach college students. But he's made reaching college students more important than obeying Jesus. Because what fellowship has light and darkness? That's what the scriptures say. What concord has Christ and Belial? So how can you come alongside of someone who denies that Jesus is the son of God and sing Christmas hymns about Christ as if you're the same, right? So what was happening was a good motive was overruling the authority of Christ. A good desire to reach people with the gospel was actually being placed ahead of the Lord of the gospel. And my guess is that's exactly what was going on. The, the people of Apollos that claimed to be Apollos said, hey, if we're going to reach the Jews, if we're going to reach the Greeks, we got to change this message of the cross. I mean, it's scandalous to them. It's, it's offensive to them. We got to change this a little bit or we're never going to reach our culture. Right? We're never going to reach people unless we somehow shift the focus here. Right? It could have been an entirely good motivation. Well, let's take the word entirely. It could have been a good motivation that exalted man's thinking above God's thinking. Right? Because anytime you and I think we know better than God, we're making a serious mistake. We're, we're seriously outrunning our coverage at that point, all right? All man-glorifying rally cries produced man-centered divisions. I mean, this is, we, we're just so prone, especially in a culture that thrives on celebrities. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous at times how much we will get behind some big name and line up behind it. I'm of so, we wouldn't say it because we happen to have read this chapter, but, but like you could, you know, you could take the name of that famous person and then put an ite on it. They're a ite, right? Because someone has had a profound influence in our lives. We now actually shift our loyalty to the instrument above the master who used the instrument. That's always going to produce division, not unity. I mean, sometimes there's just ridiculously uh, clear demonstration. I mean, 30-some years ago, about 30 years ago, there was a well-known fundamentalist pastor. I should put the fundamentalist in quotes because he had abandoned fundamentals a long time before that, but he was still very powerful. And all of a sudden it came, a conflict came up where he was accused of some things and he produced and pushed little buttons that said 100% Hiles. Jack Hiles was his name. And basically he was saying, you got to be 100% Hiles. You can't be less than that. Now I'm telling you, anybody, anybody does that. They're taking a path toward division, not toward unity. I'll be 100% Christ as revealed in his word because I don't want to be guilty of the I'm of Christ and still be crafting it my own way because you know what if if you're never if you're never finding anything in the word to correct you 
then you're not 100% Christ because you don't actually perfectly align with him. So unless you're having to be brought to obedience to the word, sometimes even in ways you don't like, right? You have to bow the knee to the authority of Jesus in the word. Then, then you're not lined up with him. Because if Jesus is just a mere reflection of what you think, then there's a problem, right? It's got to be the word that controls us. And we cannot turn around and, and adopt this kind of I'm of so-and-so. And I mean, one of our graduates pastor out in California, and the, please hear this the right way. This was not a problem with John MacArthur. This was a problem with somebody who was a MacArthurite, right? And they were talking about something doing in the church, and, and this person was arguing for position, and the pastor started to quote to him John MacArthur to show him he was wrong. And the person said, now don't use John against me. Because basically, John was the definitive point for him, right? Not the gospel of John or John the apostle, right? That's the danger can be, right? It can turn into actually allowing Men to control us rather than the authority of the word of God. Be, be grateful for instruments, right? I don't think we should reject, uh, we shouldn't say, well, forget Cephas, forget Paul, forget Apollos. We should see them the way God sees them as instruments that God uses. But it's God who gets the glory. It's God who has the authority. The church is about Christ. It's not about some human instrument in the midst of it. And we live, I had one guy, one of these major conferences. I mean, he told me, we basically are capitalizing on the celebrity, the celebrity nature of evangelicalism. I mean, we're going to have a conference this week and, and, and we're going to have lots of great stuff. But I mean, I know, I know our conference could be bigger. Bring in bigger names because there are people who break down walls to go. I mean, I've stood at the back of auditoriums where people are running into the front seat so they can, you know, they can be in the right spot. And every time I see it, I'm like, seriously, why have we made humans so important? Why do we worship at the shrine of famous people? Why do we turn churches into the extension of some person? Right? I mean, I, I literally, my stomach goes in a knot if I hear someone say Dave Dorn's church. Because this isn't Dave Dorn's church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. Right? This is his body. It's not the extension of any human other than the Lord. He must be the center. We should never accept this kind of sloganeering party politics that views the world through that kind of a lens, right? It's contrary to what the scriptures would call us to do. And that's why he leads then in verses 13 to 17 to the, I think, two basic principles that would war against. If I summarize them, it'd be like the sinful disunity within the congregation was both disloyal to Christ and contrary to the gospel. 
So let's start with verse 13, disloyal to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Okay, so he's, he's, he's seen these statements. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. I mean, are you, are you actually saying Christ has been divided into these, these segments in some way? I'm inclined to think that what he's doing here is identifying Jesus so much with his body that he's actually tr- approaching it that way. Right? You, you don't take the body of Christ and subdivide it by these teams. Christ, Christ is the center. He must have first place. The lordship of Christ must be lived out through unity because he's not divided. That's why he says in the name, by the name of Christ, I urge you these things. And that's why he wants to make certain that they're realizing this kind of division is contrary to the very nature of what Christ is doing. He'll come in chapter 10 to say that there's one body. In chapter 11, he actually says the sin that was being committed at the Lord's table was a disregard for that body, that they were treating parts of the assembly as not worthy of their care. And they were judging incorrectly the body of Christ. Chapters 12 through 14 are focused on the importance of the body, right? What's at at root here is a heart that has dislocated Christ from the place that he rightly deserves as the head from which flows his body. And if you're messing with the body, you are actually messing with the head, right? You're going against the one who actually is the Lord. And conversion produces followers of Christ, not the baptizer. Look at what Paul does in verse 13. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Of course not, is the implied answer. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. You were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, so when you got converted, you came to understand the significance of the crucifixion and you identified with Christ through baptism, you were baptized into his name. You took it upon yourself. You confessed him as Lord. You were declaring your allegiance to him and coming under his authority to say you are of anybody else is to call into question that. I mean, just think about what Paul's saying here. You're saying, I'm of Paul. Did I die for you? Were you baptized in my name? The obvious answer is no. It was Christ who died for you. It's Christ's name under which you were baptized. And so it is Christ that must be centered, not some human instrument that God used. By narrowing the discussion, I think in verses 13 through 17, uh, to himself, Paul is beginning to show us what's going on in terms of the conflict at Corinth between the Corinthians, at least some of the Corinthians and himself. In chapter four, verse 18, he, he says, there are some of you who are puffed up and he's gonna come and confront that. Right, so, so Paul knows that what's going on here is ultimately a rejection of his ministry and apostolic authority. That's why he's gonna come and confront it. 
and he's going to highlight his own ministry practice in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and he's going to narrow the discussion to Paul and Apollos by chapter 3. It's almost as if, and I want to say this one carefully, it's almost as if the of Christ group and the of Cephas group just sort of fade away because the real issue is about wisdom that's being advocated by some that would minimize the cross. And Paul's going to start to address that. And it might be partly because Paul's ministry was, was described as being in weakness and much trembling. And in fact, he refused to take money from the Corinthians, which like to us would seem weird, but you were in a culture where patronage by well-to-do people was an expected and normal thing. And probably uh, Paul rejecting it was seemed so out of touch with the culture and possibly a denial of their friendship, right? They were wanting to do something for Paul that would have been probably expected in the Greek culture and Paul wouldn't let them do it because he wanted the gospel to be free of charge. He was putting the gospel ahead of his own personal well-being and even potentially offending them in the midst of it by not wanting to be a burden to them. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians. So it's really about Paul but when Paul narrows it to himself, he's taking this claim of Paul and he's just sort of swatting aside. You're not followers of Paul. You're followers of Christ. He was crucified for you. You were baptized in his name. It's not about me, right? Even when he defends himself, it's not about him. It's about the authority of the message that he was entrusted with. It was about the truth of the gospel and the call to follow Christ. Notice verse 17. He shifts it to the cross and talks about the fact that not only must Christ have first place, the cross must be central. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be not would not be made void. So 14, 15, and 16, Paul has what seems like a little bit of a, a diversion, but he's trying to emphasize a truth that, that he's gonna then open up in verse 17 about. Right? So he says, You weren't baptized in my name. In fact, I only baptized Crispus and Gaius. Oh yeah, the house of Stephanus too. Right? But what he's trying to show is that he wasn't out building proselytes for himself. He wasn't trying to bring people into his little schism. He wasn't operating that way. He actually didn't come to do that. He came to preach the gospel. All right, so to one theological point that's really important. Right, so people who try to join baptism to conversion in a way that makes it effective in salvation, they run right into the brick wall of what Paul says here. Right, because the thing that they were saved by was the gospel. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize. Well, if baptism affects regeneration or if baptism is effectively the sign of faith that saves you, 
then Paul set himself off in a bad direction against Christ, right? Now, it's the gospel that saves because the gospel centers on the one who saves through his death on the cross. Baptism follows as a testimony of trust in Christ, of a declaration of allegiance to Christ, but baptism does not save. All right, so that's really clear in this. Now, one question might pop into our minds, well, didn't Jesus say, go make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? So how can Paul say he's telling me to preach the gospel, not to baptize? And I think the answer to that is, is in the actions. Paul clearly is not, he's not denying the importance of baptism. He's not dismissing baptism. He's saying, I didn't baptize. Right? There's a difference. He didn't go, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not baptism. So that's why it doesn't matter if any of you got baptized. He's saying, I came to preach the gospel, not baptize. That's why other people did the baptisms, right? The baptism was still important. Paul was saying, I didn't personally do the baptisms of very many people, right? And it may be, I don't know this, but it may be that Paul understood the possibility of their forming an allegiance to him by being the person who instituted the baptisms. So he moved quickly, right? He moved quickly to have other people doing the baptisms. And it's not unlike, unlike what was happening in the day of John the Baptist and Jesus in that regard. So he didn't want to build a cult following of himself because the centerpiece was the gospel of Christ. He was proclaiming it. Notice the phrase in verse 17, the cleverness of speech. And again, some of you, we have a footnote there that says wisdom of speech. And, and what they're doing is trying to sort of put a gloss on the word wisdom to show it's not real wisdom that's the problem. It's more sophisticated, uh, a kind of philosophical speech by which you preach the same kind of thing. Look at chapter two, verse one. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Again, his Argument there is not that the gospel was contrary to true wisdom, but that there was a kind of wisdom that was being articulated, which actually was contrary to the gospel. That's why he says in 117 that if you are in cleverness of speech, that the cross, that causes the cross of Christ to be made void or to be rendered powerless in that regard. So here's, Here's Paul's initial plea for the church at Corinth to have unity, right? And how can we avoid disunity and build unity? It is that we must exalt Christ, not his servants. He alone was the one who was crucified. And it is that we proclaim the cross as the only means by which we can be saved. And we preach the cross in its, uh, if I could put it this way, horrible reality, right? For us, the cross is an ornament. At the time it happened, and in the time of this book, it was an instrument of execution, right? It, it, it'd be like, it'd be like uh, for us, the guillotine or the electric chair, 
or the gas chamber. We think of those things and we don't think any kind of sentimental imagery, right? We, if we see somebody walking around with, with uh, you know, a, an executioner's axe on their T-shirt, we start to go like, yeah, something wrong with you, buddy. But we have people walk around with a cross and we think, yes, yes. Right? It's only because we understand what it means to us but in the first century, their reaction would be sort of like the executioner's acts. This is an instrument of death for the lowest of criminals. It was something among the Jews that was viewed as being cursed by God. And among the, the Gentiles, it was for the lowest dregs of criminals. Yet Paul says, we preach it. We preach it without sophistication. We preach it without trying to, to, you know, spice it up and make it look more attractive because to do that is actually to render it void because the cross humbles us. We actually see how deep our sin was that it cost the death of the Son of God. It actually also causes us to see how important the other members of our spiritual family are because Jesus shed his blood for them. He died for them. They shouldn't just become the object of our political conflict brokering power to get our way in the church. This is the body of Christ for which he gave himself up. It actually causes us to be motivated to do the work he's given us to do without regard for the cost associated with it. If Jesus would die for us, then at bare minimum, we must live for him. But we should also be ready to die for him if that's what his call is. And we can talk a lot about being ready to die for him, but when we won't adjust our schedules, or temp, uh, you know, taper our temporal desires. Because that's what most church fights are over. It's not about some deep, big issue. It's about my way versus your way. When we won't bend for the sake of serving Christ and the health of his body, then I doubt we're going to die for him. It just it doesn't follow if we can't give up the smallest of sacrifices that we'd make the ultimate sacrifice. The cross brings us back to what matters most in how we see ourselves, how we see one another, and how we see the church and the mission of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us with such an incredible love that your son would die for sinners, that you would send us the gospel to call us out of our darkness and into light, that your spirit would work to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that we might call on the name of Christ. Lord, please help us to see 
that when we reduce the church to the kind of petty politics that this world is governed by, we dishonor Christ and we distort the gospel. Lord, I thank you for the way that you have worked to produce in us a heart for your word, a longing for Christ, that by, by the standards of, of where churches often are plagued by division, we can give praise for incredible unity, that you have been so kind to us. But please keep us from ever presuming that that is our work and our accomplishment. Help us to recognize that it doesn't take long for the devil to sow seeds of discord. That the trajectory away from faithfulness is a subtle one. And, and that the path doesn't have a massive divergence, but a, a subtle slope in the direction of selfishness. Please help us to have Christ in first place and to have the cross at the very center of our understanding about what he did for us and, and what should matter most to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.